Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Well, hello, everyone. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos, and we have a really special guest today. Welcome to the show, Kelly Jackson Higgins. Hi. Thanks for having me here, Brian and John. Welcome, Kelly. Kelly. It's uh, it's great to have you uh, on again and speak to you. It's been a few years. You're one of the podcasts that I always love to have on board because your your visibility into what's happening in the industry is quite different than uh, you know bringing on a CISO or a technology vendor. It's it's it has a, a completely different flavor. So I'm really excited mm-hmm. for this. As we get started, Kelly, perhaps you could give some of our listeners a little background about you and. What, how you got into the industry and what exactly it is you do. Certainly. Um, so I am the editor-in-chief at Dark Reading. Uh, and Dark Reading is a cybersecurity news site. We celebrated our 17th birthday this year. So we've been around for almost 20 oh, wow. years. Yes. And I was employee That's number huge. three or four in June of 2006. So I've been with since the beginning. One month. I came one month wow. on after they launched. Um, and I've been doing cybersecurity, well, technology journalism for probably... 30 years, can I say it out loud? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, kind of sort of naturally flew, flowed into security because it was an area that was really of interest to me. So I started covering that. Originally, I was going to be a sports writer, but based on the news I've seen the last week, that was a really good decision that didn't work out because that's <laughs> not a very long and sadly not a great career right now for most journalists. So I think that all worked out for the best. But yeah, I ended up, I, I started out as sort of a, a tech writer. Um, there were a lot of publications out there looking for journalists to write about technology. So that's kind of how I got in there um, with my sports writing <laughs> uh, career. But um, over the years, obviously, when you report on these things, you sort of become not an expert, but a, a person who can really understand what's going on, know the right questions to ask. You have to portray it and, and communicate it to your, to your reader. So you have to understand what you're talking about. So I'd say over the mm-hmm. years, I've amassed a lot of knowledge. I started out really covering the networking space. So I've followed uh, sort of the internet evolution, uh, TCP IP protocol stack evolution, all that. So I watched that grow, wrote about that, and then have watched the cybersecurity industry explode the last 17 years, basically into this massive thing. So that's kind of how I got there. That's incredible. And what, you know, dark reading, I I think pretty much everybody in the security industry is familiar with it. Uh, it's one of those just go-to sites that with so much great content. W- was it always online or was Dark Reading at one point a physical magazine or how, how did that? Evolve? Yeah, so we were always online. So we started out as a website, yeah. And of course I'd come from the print side of things that evolved into print and throw things up on the web was the terminology that was used when you had your on ver- online version of your publication. Mm-hmm. And that evolved quickly, obviously very rapidly as journalism changed. Um, but yeah, we were always online, always an you know virtual site. You were ahead of the curve yes. for yes. sure, because I, I remember at a time. Well, maybe all of us remember used to get those weekly magazines sent to your office or home, and some of them were huge. I don't know why, but they were these really big form form factors, and you know you'd get like ten of them a week, and maybe you'd read mm-hmm. like two of them, and I'm like, oh man, this is such a waste. <laughs> why aren't these just online? And then of course, dark reading, uh, always being online, I think really gave you an edge. So no, that's awesome. Yeah. 
So Kelly, how how has it grown? I mean, just uh, I'm just interested. But like, how big is Dark Reading now? You were like, like you said, number six or what did you say back in? Yeah, so in that time, 2006 that we were two. We were actually like three people, and then we were down to two people for a while. Uh, Tim Wilson, wow. and myself, who was one of the co-founders. Um, so we worked. Him and I worked together pretty much the whole site for a while by ourselves, uh, with a couple of freelancers helping. <laughs> And then we started sort of adding on. Um, and then to the past year, we're now up to the biggest staff we've ever had. I have We have eight people counting me, which is amazing. So we have a huge staff. Wow. Um, huge. That sounds not huge. But for us, it is. <laughs> uh, we still have a, a large contingent of freelancers who work with us um, on a regular basis mm -hmm. and some on uh, a project-by-project basis. We kind of look bigger than we are <laughs> in terms of staff. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, the site has grown dramatically. So we had you know, pretty much we were a news site for a long time. And then we added something called The Edge, which is a feature section. So we added that a few years ago. And then two years ago, we had a site called DR Technology that really gives us a place to, we found it was getting harder, as you know, more vendors around than we're back in 2006. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's many thousands. Um, and we realized we didn't have a great place to sort of put the new product news, the technology news, um, to let it stand out because there's so much other news happening around the threatscape and the attack space. So we decided to put together a section called DR Technology, aka DR Tech, that's really dedicated mm -hmm. to that. Um, so it gives us room to do deep dives on technology trends, and then of course some product news. We can't cover it all; there's so much of it. And then we also have a new section we just rolled out. It's been a month now. Uh, DR Global, uh, which is kind of exciting because this is our first official foray into covering more globally the cybersecurity space. Mm -hmm. um, and we decided to pick like one region right now since we're not that big. <laughs> So um, our new editor uh, is focusing mainly on the Middle East and Africa, which we see as a really uh, majorly growing area in cyber. And we want to talk to the cybersecurity professionals in that, those regions. So he's, he's sort of starting to dig into that. So we have a new section called DR Global. So three sort of like sections within the site, um, which is kind of cool, in mm -hmm. addition to our topical section. So uh, we have grown a lot. Well, you said eight people. You could have told me you had 80 people. I, I know. Not I'm saying, I, like, oh my God, eight people? That's incredible. Yeah, we got eight people. Oh my gosh, that's well, amazing. We're, well, <laughs> we're, we're lean and mean, as we like to say. Um, yeah. And very efficient. Yeah, that's the other thing. We are very efficient. <laughs> well, and, and I think... I think it's such a smart idea focusing on the Middle East as well. I was just mm -hmm. out in Dubai, maybe about a year ago now, and I was at a couple cybersecurity conferences, and some of those were like five, six times the size of RSA. I mean, mm -hmm. they're they're huge. There's a huge market there, especially on the OT side of the house, right? Because there's a lot of a lot of oil and gas and things like that. So let let's kind of jump in, you know, because you've been you've been doing this for so long, and you see you have so many different kind of angles on this. What are what are some of the hot sort of cybersecurity threats or trends or priorities that you're seeing right now? As per usual, there's more coming at us that we can even write about. Like that's our daily, we call it the, the fire hose triage that we go through. Like just, there's just so much. So we literally mm -hmm. every morning, we have these like quick morning briefing debriefs of what we're going to take on that day. And, and also what we're going to put into feature section or long-term coverage section. I think, you know, Obviously, the stuff that's in the headlines is obviously the obvious stuff. Like ransomware has evolved into more of an extortion. Mm -hmm. Actually, kind of went full circle. It started out as kind of just pure extortion, and it's kind of come back to that, I guess. Um, so that's one thing mm -hmm. we've talked. We talk a lot about, um, and um, you know, the whole AI thing kind of was a a bit of a, as everyone knows, an overnight issue in security. Mm -hmm. We've been sort of talking about AI for decades. Is coming along, and 
and being a, a coming thing. But when ChatGPT dropped, I think everybody just sort of had a wake-up call, like, wow, this is this is something yep. we have to look at. So we're trying We thought we still had 20 exactly. years. <laughs> I feel like we're we're definitely digging into that more. You know, there was a lot of hype at the beginning. We we've done some like you know, myth dispelling kind of pieces on that. Um, I think we still don't really know what the impact's going to be. Um, I think one thing mm-hmm. that we've been really interested in is watching uh, security vendors kind of adopting the technology very quickly now too, like incorporating it into their platforms, their services, using it for good. Um, so I like to think that the good guys are a little ahead of the bad guys in that space right now, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not going to last for very long. But I think that's really interesting to see how we can sort of, as industry, have a little bit of a leg up for once. I don't know what you all think of that, but that seems like a, a pretty interesting theme to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no question. No question. I mean, uh, and you, like you said, you're, you're starting to report on some of the big companies coming and talking about their plans for AI and kind of they're starting to develop and, how, and their, their, their vision for how they're going to incorporate it and the benefits of it. And you, you, I mean, it's incredible. Like you said, it happened virtually overnight. I think most in security probably weren't having those discussions before chat GPT, right? And then suddenly it's, we better have a, we better have a roadmap and a vision for how we're going to incorporate AI. I think every security company is looking at that um, right now, I, I would say. Do you, do you think so, Brian? Yeah, you know, I, I think you you said it the most honest way you possibly could, Kelly. We, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what's yeah. going to happen, right? This is, this is all net new. And, you know, it's the nefarious actors versus those those folks that are trying to develop tools to uh, protect us. And both sides are going to leverage AI. There's no question about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I like to judge things by walking through big security conferences like RSA. And there's always something that's the thing each year. Like a few years ago, it was cloud, right? And uh, I remember way back when it was like PKI. Uh, certainly it's AI now. And I think it's going to be AI for a while. Um, I, I'm wondering in, in all the things that you've covered, have you started to see any kind of ransomware or attacks that are actually using some type of AI component or is that still, at least from what you've been exposed to, is that still a ways out? Just full disclosure, I don't get to do as much reporting as I used to on the visitor in chiefs, but mm-hmm. from what we've written so far, there has been no, you know, big AI based attacker yet. And that's been, that's kind of the worry, right? Um, there's some folks out there saying that that's just not going to happen right away, and that's nothing. It's kind of a, a thing that's kind of a scare thing right now, and not a not a real risk yet. But you know, it wouldn't put they wouldn't put a fascination state if they wanted to play with it that way, right? That's a, another possibility. Um, but I, I still don't think anything that's ever happened in this industry that I've been covering has happened as quickly as that whole thing dropped. Yeah. Like that was to me just I've never seen anything happen so quickly and shift so quickly like when I dropped when Chat DPD dropped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you made a great point. You, you know, you mentioned nation states, which of, of course, have in many cases seemingly limitless resources to put into these types of things. And Russia, uh, just just you know, maybe a couple of years ago, had a tool called Fronten, which was designed for the FSB by actually a, a firm of contractors to be an XIOT discovery, compromise, and control tool to find. You know these these printers and these cameras and these digital door locks and these OT devices that might be uh, accessible and taking those devices over for any number of things. One, maybe just to add them to a bot. Two, to use them to uh, pivot to sort of IT centric assets and perhaps exfiltrate data or maybe maintain persistence and evade detection. All these things um, and that. <sighs> 
you know, th that tool got stolen by the Digital Revolution Hacking Group and released kind of to the wild on um, various various websites and, and locations you can download. And if you speak Russian, or if you can use Google's uh, Russian to English Translate, uh, you too can have a nation state designed XIOT hacking tool. So to me, it's, all, it's only gonna take one of those types of things, one of those AI-centric types of attacks or some malware where the, the code's released that will just start a snowball going where everyone's gonna jump on it, both in other nation states as well as cyber criminals. Now, who's gonna get there first? And how's that gonna evolve? I don't know. But once that Pandora box is open, though, I think we're just going to see it everywhere. And I, I just don't know what the time frame for that is. Yeah, that is a little bit scary. But you're right. That's a good point. Like, kind of historically, this industry has always been like a watershed breach that like changes things, right? I can think of like five that I've covered over the decades. And that would that would be one of them if that happens, <laughs> that way you just mentioned. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, the interesting thing, right, Brian, about Fronton is it also has, a, has an element to it that can quickly spawn hundreds of social media accounts. Uh, and so, you know, if you kind of get and think in terms of why they would have done something like that, and you kind of combine something like AI and think, well, what if they captured, what if they compromised a camera and captured an image? And, and as we know, most people sometimes don't understand the cameras are capturing audio as well as the video. Um, and they could perhaps you know, put this information up on social media and use AI to maybe alter the image or alter the sound, right? So I think when I look at some of these nation state threats and the way that they're built and some of the capabilities they have, you almost wonder if they're already a few steps ahead thinking about how they might be able to use something like AI um, to, you know, real time, case, deep fake, exactly crazy, right, oh, right. Yeah, from a camera that camera that's compromised, uh, which again, leads us back to why we have this podcast. We call it XIOT, which is all <laughs> the, all these devices, there's billions of them, right? Kelly. And, uh, that's, we focus a lot, we, obviously on the full threat landscape, but obviously we focus a lot on those, which is, you know, the IOT stuff, the OT, the ICS, the industrial IOT, the, um, internet of medical things. And, all those devices and you just think of uh, that that kind of threat plane, right? Um, and that attack surface is just massive. Um, is that something you guys, Kelly, as you, as you look upon kind of some of the trends that you're looking at, is that popping up a bit more? Oh, absolutely. These days? Absolutely. Or? So probably about 10 years ago or so, around Stuxnet timeframe, whatever it was, I started covering IoT stuff, or excuse me, OT stuff and nobody was really excited about it. I remember like, oh, it mm -hmm. wasn't a lot of, didn't get a lot of readers on our stories. I'm like, this stuff's really important. <laughs> and so about a year ago, we added a new section on our site called ICSOT security because now everybody knows what it is. We had IoT. Yep. We kind of broke it into two parts. We kept IoT work yep. for consumer with the time, small devices, smaller devices. But we we kind of were wondering how to, we're kind of rearranging a little bit how we do that now because XIoT, I think, is probably a good way to look at it, like kind of bringing all those different sectors together, all very mm -hmm. different markets. But it's the same concept, right? These are devices yep. that you know people don't think of as computers sometimes and they are right and they have connectivity and uh yeah and a lot of the the manufacturers aren't thinking about security when they're building them i feel like that whole ot space though to me what's really interesting is you know after stuxnet for example you saw siemens suddenly just go all in with you know building out sec a security team uh doing a patching program um now they have security services i mean it, I just, I, I'm at awe sometimes when I think about how much that part of the industry has changed. 
Um, and then looking at, um, you know, now they're trying to build security into PLCs. You know, they are doing that, obviously not trying mm-hmm. to, they are doing it. All the other vendors too in that space. Um, so I feel like it's come a long way, yet still a long way to go. I go to the S4 conference every year. And um, mm-hmm. one of the comments, I mean, you might know Dale Peterson who runs that conference. He's mm-hmm. super smart guy. Um, in his keynote, he was talking about how there's still a visibility problem. Of course, this is a problem in IT for generations. <laughs> it's not a new problem, yeah. right? And so he was talking about just the lack of OT, that a lot, most OT sites don't really have visibility, obviously, in their systems. And also, they don't have a lot of metrics to to really track things. So there's a lot of missing uh, management of all this stuff, right? And then, you know, some of the research we saw recently was things like cellular routers in the on the plant floor having vulnerabilities as a way to get in. Um, and then uh, management interfaces, web-based management interfaces, some of these little, you know, mm-hmm. level one pieces of equipment that nobody cared about, right? That you think, oh, they're just on the plant floor. No one could get to those. But it's just really interesting because we worried a lot about some of the PLC stuff, but then the stuff on the floor that's like kind of the the, the little devices you don't think about have just as many vulnerabilities and can be another way for an attacker to get in. So I think there's more, um, not just lore about attacks there, but I think there's more of you know, serious work going into there and interest. I, and I also look back to not really Stuxnet, but probably Colonial Pipeline, I think shook everybody mm-hmm. up because that was the first time we saw a big, huge disruption in the US, you know, that really was something people could understand, even though it wasn't their OT environment. But the company getting attacked like that, I think really was a wake-up call for that sector of the industry. Yeah, and for me, I think one of the big wake-up calls when I, I started researching this space was just the sheer volume of devices, like, uh, what we find now is there's about three to five XIOT devices per employee in a company. So 10,000 people, you have somewhere between 30 to 50,000, which is usually about twice as many than most people would would just naturally think. And they go, oh, I forgot about the voice over IP phones. Oh, all the digital door locks, all the printers or the lights out management or HVAC. Or, there's all these things now that are smart. And the other component of that. Most of them are just Linux servers. They're they're Android. They're BusyBox. They're Ubuntu. On the OT side, it's um, you know real time operating systems like VxWorks. But these are smart systems. I mean, we've come across security cameras that are actually more powerful in terms of storage, processing, memory than a typical laptop. Uh, so if you compromise one of those, you have a you have a pretty beefy Linux server, then that, that you can go ahead and use to attack other IT assets or cloud assets exfiltrate sensitive data. And the thing about it is they're not being managed. Most organizations aren't tracking them and they don't know where they are. They have some default password that was put in when someone showed up in a van with a box and a drill and stuck these things on a wall 15 years ago. Um, So they're old firmware, they're full of vulnerabilities and there's just this massive attack surface, which I think back to, we were talking about Fronten, why nation states have taken interest right? Why cyber criminals have figured out how to monetize these types of attacks. And I think the old XIOT attacks were like, I'm going to add your device to a botnet and do bad things, or I'm going to use it for uh, crypto jacking, and I'm going to mine cryptocurrency on all your cameras, and you won't know it until your power bill goes through the roof. Uh, But now we're seeing a lot more of these attacking IT assets. I'm wondering, do you, I know this, you're coming at this from a different perspective, but do you think the industry is ready for this? Or is this another one of those like AI things where that event, that thing, that watershed kind of happening is going to have to occur 
on the XIOT side or reoccur if we want to count Stuxnet mm-hmm. for people to take interest? Or do you think we, we've learned and we've matured and we're, people are starting to get ahead of this? I think it's both things. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that unfortunately in our industry, it often takes a really bad experience or breach to really to really make change. I mean, you think about the retail breaches, you think about Stuxnet, mm-hmm. you think about Colonial Pipeline, Solar Winds. I mean, all of those themes, then you see real work getting done, like things people start you know, getting getting on getting on track with trying to address it. I think, you know, we did have a little bit of a taste of some of that. I was thinking about when you made me think, Brian, when you mentioned the Russian tool. Do you remember there was the Ryuk attacks that went after the um which were the ones that went after the IoT home routers? There was an attack a few years ago where it was a Russian threat actor reportedly that I don't remember I read about it, I can't remember if it was confirmed, but basically um compromised a bunch of home routers and it could have gotten mm-hmm. much worse. It got caught early on, but it was like affecting like so many of them. The question was why would they be going after consumer routers? Like what was the point of that for spying? So mm-hmm. you know those kind of things make you wonder. Like we've had touch brushes with it, but not like a big enough, you know, widespread attack that probably people could feel it. <laughs> um one yeah. thing I think about too that you touched on this too was you know, now you've got a bunch of companies with workers who are at home, working from home, from home networks that have IoT consumer devices that may not be secure also. And not all organizations are on top of their remote workforce security, right? So you have that element of not not particular, it wouldn't be like your stove would cause a DDoS attack on the company, but there are some vulnerable devices on your home network, right? If they're not on top of that, that could bleed into your, your uh, corporate network if you weren't on top of that with, you know, your strategy of you know, identity security, zero trust or whatever. But I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think both, I think we've had some experiences to, for real, we have examples now, right, of what could happen. Um, I think about Triton too, that was another one that didn't hit, you know, the US, but that was a pretty serious attack that could have been a lot worse. So I think it, unfortunately, I hope it doesn't take <laughs> a big event to, to make change. But that unfortunately has been a pattern industry for a long time, I think for, you know, more interest, mm-hmm. more understanding of what it means. And John, I know you've been uh, talking to a lot of healthcare providers lately as well. That mm-hmm. seems to be a particular vertical, not, not even healthcare payers or sciences, so insurance or, or uh, you know, pharma, but actual like hospitals and labs and, and clinics. They, th- this seems to be a, a awfully big topic for them, isn't it? It is, and and you know, Kelly, you talked a lot about kind of the OTICS side, and you know. It's- and Dale and the S4 and, and that whole area, right? You've got these, what I call mission critical, you know, operational technology devices that are running critical infrastructure, utilities, gas, you know, it, it could be a manufacturer making medicines, right? I mean, so they're very, very critical devices that no one wants to touch. In many cases, they're very old or they're very sensitive and you just want to kind of, it's very delicate. Right? It's very difficult to deal with. Then you look on the, the healthcare side and it's very similar. It just happens to be an infusion pump or, you know, a critical, what, what the healthcare uh, organizations call life critical device, right? This is literally a device that's by the bedside monitoring medicines or things like this, a very, very critical device. And in some cases, hospitals will even consider a camera that's watching, say, an ICU unit, which will recognize in combination with the badge, the nurses that are able to go into that facility. So they'll even consider some devices you might think of as just a typical IoT device. This is a very life-critical device. And they're facing the same thing. Don't touch them, right? My God, they're life-critical. We can't see them. We don't know how to find them. We don't know what's wrong with them. We don't know how to fix them. All we know is they're being highly targeted. 
And of course, uh, things like infusion pumps and IOMT devices right now, they're targeted for ransomware in a lot of times, but you could do a lot of damage to a person if you wanted to uh, with those. And it's a really difficult situation um, for a lot of these organizations, I, th I think. Yeah, safety's definitely become more a part of the issue just as much as security, right? Because I think that's where it gets real mm -hmm. for people, um, you know, thinking about what could have happened or what could happen, you know? So I think that yeah. does kind of play in it. Well, interestingly, those industrial environments and of course the hospital, safety is like one of their number one things, right? That they that they do, that's yes. a priority. In the OT space, it's been a, traditionally a priority over cybersecurity and safety is always first, physical safety for obvious reasons. So mm -hmm. bringing those two things together is not so simple though, as we know. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was talking to a CISO for a pretty, pretty large regional healthcare provider and they, they spelled it out pretty simply. They said, every dollar we spend that's not dedicated to patient care, for example, on security, security teams, assessments, what have you. That, that's a dollar that's not going to a doctor, a nurse, a PA, an MRI machine, something like that to keep patient care up there. And while, while safety and security certainly and privacy as well are certainly big components of that, that's, that's kind of how it's looked at. And their margins are, are pretty thin as well, probably not quite like retail, but they start at a, a deficit because they can't refuse care, of course. If somebody comes in off the street, they, they have to be able to, to treat them. That's the right thing to do. So they kind of start from a negative spot and then work their way up. And their measurements are generally based on bed utilization. And I didn't know this, but a lot of these healthcare providers, how big are you? It's based on how many beds. We have 1,000 mm -hmm. beds. Oh, we have 2,000 yep. beds. That's that's kind of the, the number they do. So that's how they put their calculus together. Mm -hmm. So it's it really just becomes a dollar here isn't a dollar there. And the result of that is just like in retail, I see a lot of similarities there. They run with razor thin teams. So somebody that might be responsible for, you know, enterprise security and identity and, and maybe PII is also the person that when they do have a spare minute, hey, track down all these printers and track down all these insulin pumps. And yeah, they, they don't have the cycles uh, for doing this. So if we look at verticals like healthcare providers, is, is it similar to retail where they're just constantly trying to play catch up and hire enough people and, and get enough resources and get enough budget? Or have we gotten to the point now where we understand that hey, patient safety and security is just as critical from a cyber side as it is for making sure they're getting the right treatments. And we have to make sure we're protecting these people from all directions. I'd like to think it's that way, but I don't know mm -hmm. if that's really where things are going. Yeah, just from what I've seen in our reporting, the larger healthcare organizations are moving that ideal direction, right? But I think it's still a struggle for some of the smaller ones. Um, and they've had, you know, they had some horrible experience with the ransomware the last few years that, you know, shut down ERs yeah. and that's just not okay. And that yeah. did give some visibility to the threat. And sadly, I think mm -hmm. that's probably the one good thing, if there is anything good about ransomware, is it actually is so visible and so it affects things that you can't hide <laughs> anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it shuts down an operation. And so I think that probably was a wake-up call, obviously, for the healthcare field. But I think... Um, there's still a ways to go. Like you said, you mentioned, Brian, there's a ton of, and uh, John, you were talking about all different devices out there. I mean, every time I go to a mm -hmm. hospital visit or a doctor's visit, I look at all those things and you look at it from the cybersecurity perspective, you're like, what's yeah. that thing connected to? Is it, you know, is it an IP address? Of course it does. And you think about all that, you know, and you know that the person working, and a lot of people in there don't know that, that are working with the, those systems. And a lot of them come with default, you know, connectivity or or they're beaconing out and they don't know it. And that, that, that can be mm -hmm. really, I don't know how you get on top of that if you're a small or mid-sized healthcare organization. I, I think I said I think it's really the funding 
point you made, Brian, is really good because I think that's a lot of it. If there's money for it, it's going to happen. I don't know if it's a comparison with the retail industry. Um, I can't really say that, but you know, obviously the financial field has been way ahead of everybody else in this all the all the sectors, and they've always been you know ahead of the game in that and and cybersecurity. So, but I, I mean, I'm hopeful that you know more healthcare organizations can catch up because it is very scary when you think about what could happen. Yeah, and on the other side of it, Kelly, uh, I know you you not only talk to different types of industries and experts, but you also talk to those vendors, of course, that are bringing technologies into market and uh, God help you because they're, like you said, thousands and thousands. And if you just even think of the the sectors of security that have <laughs> exploded since you first, you know, founded that, you know, dark reading. But um, when you think in terms of, you know, OT, ICS, you know, anything what we would think of XIOT, is there anything you've seen from a vendor perspective that's interesting that you see, like even thinking of S4 and kind of what's kind of hot, what's happening? Is there any, is there something significant you're seeing from a vendor perspective that, it, that matters in all the things we're talking about to help companies, you know, help with this and help secure these things? I think overall, you know, I remember when I first went to S4, they would have like a little vendor demo and it was just like a handful of vendors. Like there were just like three or mm-hmm. four that made like you know, factory firewalls, very specific. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen over the last few years is how those functionalities have gotten folded into more comprehensive security views on those plant floors. So services-based things, for example, or platforms that have multiple, you know, kind of like an IT, IT um, multiple functionality. Um, I think probably the most important thing, and I think we touched on this earlier in the space, is just being able to see what you have out there and what, it, what it's doing. Like, is it connected to something mm-hmm. it's not supposed to be connected to? I mean, there have been years of all these, you know, these internet, public internet scanning projects have been going on, right? And unfortunately, when there's one that happens now, you still find, like, factory and industrial systems talking to the public internet that aren't supposed to be. So there's still that problem Mm -hmm. of locking down those ports, um, knowing that that particular system should not be, (laughs) have a public internet internet connection. Um, So I think the visibility thing is huge. I think um, the fact that these systems are getting a little more advanced, and of course they're going into environments where the OT teams are more about the flo- what's happening on, in their production and their manufacturing and their processes. They don't have time to sit there and figure out zero trust, right? So I think this yep. idea of bringing more services-based stuff and also stuff that combines with the IT side requirements is important. There's still, I think, a bit of a gap sometimes for IT and OT just because they're different worlds, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the mm-hmm. the the, what I've seen is of the, of the ICS spaces that the OT spaces that the security vendors are kind of moving more towards giving them the tools they need that they don't have time to figure out on their own, right? To, to know, to, to run those systems mm-hmm. or to protect those systems, excuse me. Yeah. So you were mentioning some of the factory devices. I remember, boy, this might've been about 20 years ago, I was uh, part of a project called Project Logic, which was linking oil and gas. It was a Department of Defense project. And they were talking about ruggedized firewalls. And I had never heard that term before. And they were showing them to me, these appliances at the time. And essentially, it was a, a regular appliance, like a 2U appliance, that they sprayed with something that I'm pretty sure was Linux, the stuff that you actually spray in the back of like a pickup truck. So if you throw rocks and wood back there, it doesn't scratch it. Um, and they had these screens everywhere around it. And I was asking the you know, the folks are, what's this screen for? And they said, well, that's so like the spiders don't crawl in and lay eggs. <laughs> like, <laughs> so oh my God. It, it just, that shows you some of the things that they have to consider. And they're like, 
They're like, yeah, this thing is going to be sitting in a shack in the middle of nowhere next to a dam. Yeah. And it protects this one PLC that all it does is something like open dam, close dam. It does two things. Probably does more than mm -hmm. that, but just for the sake of argument. And that's all it did. I was like, all right. Yeah, it's Black Widow proof. That's awesome. <laughs> well, a lot of those um, plants are like not their people don't work there, right? They're un, quote unquote unmanned right. plants where you can't live there. They're on some, some oil rig out in the middle of the ocean. And, you know, that's why these cellular, you know, devices that were there routers if those are compromised who's going to be there to notice that or to take care of the right the system there they thought they were secure and they weren't so it's just interesting yeah i'm, I'm wondering does has dark reading covered in the past or are you covering this more, more frequently this whole idea about biohacking and we're seeing a lot of cases where you know like uh like a heart heart monitor device or something that somebody might have is connected to Bluetooth to their phone and then can speak out to the doctor and the doctor can sort of track heart rhythms and, and things like that. But there's also things that people are just like implanting so they can open their doors or start their car and doing all sorts of very interesting things. And I'm just wondering where that's going to go. Like you're not hacking someone's home, you're hacking someone. Uh, is, mm -hmm. is that something that's showing up more and more in dark? Yeah, rain? we did cover a lot of those um, early days uh medical device uh, breaches that were shown at Black Hat and DEF CON. I think DEF CON was always ahead of the game with the biohacking village. I've gone to that a few times. Mm -hmm. Similar, like they show, I think that's, we've covered it more from that perspective, not so much on a bigger scale. I'm sure there'll be more of that there this year at DEF CON too. But I think it's, you know, I think people are still not as aware. I have a friend who has a an impl implant in his hand that can open his garage or used to be able to do that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I did it. But yeah, that's another area that's interesting. I don't think it's hugely like on our big big on our radar screen right now, but we do cover the quirky stuff like that too when it's when it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things at lastly, you know, wondering your thoughts and whether you're seeing this. One of one of the things we're seeing, Kelly, is just a movement toward actually trying to fix these things, right? Uh, the state of them is we've talked about it here today. They're a mess. And I always talk about what a mess they are. They're De credentials are almost all default. If they've ever been changed, they were changed weekly when they were provisioned, so, and that's it. Uh, but most, you know, default. The firmware's six, seven. On some of these PLCs, it might be a decade or old, right? Uh, ports and protocols open, just wide open. You mentioned that, you know, just no, no ability to kind of do anything. And we see, you know, yet almost every day we see CIS, I have more advisories say, here's another critical CVE on another PLC or one of these devices. And I think what we're seeing, curious if you're seeing the same thing, is some exhaustion on the side of like CISOs that say, I have plenty of technologies that try to tell me how sick these devices are, but I don't really, I need to actually make them better. Um, I need to be able to fix them like an IT asset. Like these are table stakes. Let's rotate the credentials. Let's upgrade. Let's patch the firmware. Let's shut off extraneous insecure ports and protocols. Let's do some configuration management. Let's get full visibility. How about maybe actually monitor these things, maintain state on these devices because they drift. Or as you mentioned, some of these things just pop up. I mean, they're just there. They shouldn't even be there. Um, and they move and they change, right? So it's something we're seeing. Do, do you see that as this emerging kind of um, desire um, 
and uh, any anything you're following there as as that evolves these days kind of depends on the the industry sector but you did touch on something i think is interesting the the weaknesses you mentioned uh, those were cited you know what 10 years ago in project sonar that hd moore did on his own when he was scanning the internet for stuff so some of those things were have been out there we've seen that for like 10 or 15 years right and here we yeah. are still talking about them right we still see research yeah. same problems same you know insecure by design issues um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it depends on the industry. So for example, and you probably know this, John, if you're talking to folks in the industrial sector, they can't patch everything. Some things you just can't patch. I mean, if you have mm-hmm. operational requirements that this, you're in a manufacturing process or oil refinery process, whatever that cannot be stopped for patching, or that's too dangerous to patch it, too risky, they're not going to patch it. So mm-hmm. sometimes you're seeing these like, oh, Siemens has a new patch or, or Schneider, a lot of companies aren't even going to use it. So the, <laughs> right. I, I always wonder what happens right. then. Like they're not actually necessarily patching. I can't remember what the data I saw was and how many of these industrial patches are actually applied. It's not a high percentage. So no. there you touched on the other thing that I was thinking about too. And that's a mm-hmm. lot of it is just, you know, monitoring these systems, right? Staying, not just doing all the, you know, security, best practices, hygiene, et cetera, but also like just monitoring what's going on making sure you have, you know, access controls, you know, identity manage mm-hmm. security, all those things, mm-hmm. right? Everything you can do to kind of like, you know, minimize your risk, but they can't necessarily update some of these products anyway, right? You're right. So that's, a, plus if they'll be, you know, some are 20 years old, you spend so much X dollars on, you're not going to mm-hmm. swap that thing out, right? To me, that's always the big question of how in the world do we get on top of something like that? Like, <laughs> I think that's the million dollar question. Yeah. Uh, I do feel like there is, uh, the bigger vendors, we are seeing them obviously addressing this in a, you know, step by step, right? Um, but then there's the configuration piece, right? If you get one of these devices, you don't configure properly, you're leaving yourself open, right? So how do you get on top of that? That's not always the vendor's responsibility. I mean, they sometimes there's things come with default settings, and maybe that gets ignored, you know, or whatever, but that yeah. can be devastating. You know, we probably almost yeah. all the cloud, you know, misconfiguration stuff we have seen the past couple of years has been obvious that people need the configuration is really important how you configure something mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i don't really know the answer to that because i don't think it there is one answer it really depends i think like i said the bigger companies i think the small consumer iot companies i, I got some new appliances they have wi-fi capability i don't want it i can't shut it <laughs> off they're not connected but they have they're beaconing to my phone i'm like stop yeah. i don't want you <laughs> and i did all the things that the Vendor told me to shut it down, and it's not doing it. Yep. Do I have to go in there and take something out of the of my stove? I don't know. You know, you think about a lot of people who don't know that half their house is wired. You know, is smart, right? They don't know, right? But that's a consumer issue, obviously, too. But yeah, I, I don't think there's. A, I have really an answer for that one. It's it's complicated. No, it's yeah. great. I mean, you you nail. I mean, I think you said it very clear. That's really kind of the state, right? It's it's the it's very difficult, and in cases when. I think, like you said, in cases when you can't patch it or it's very difficult to patch or there's other things to do. As Brian and I say a lot, um, it doesn't really, you shouldn't spend a ton of time worrying that you have six critical CVEs if your credentials are default and I can look them up on Google and just log right into the device. Probably should focus on maybe that first. So there are some things we can do uh, aside from just focusing on, on the patching, right, Brian, to kind of you know, yeah, I, John and I have said this before as well. I, I often think of XIOT security today as IT security was in the in the late 1990s. You mm-hmm. know, rotate your passwords, 
patch your devices, shut off stuff you don't need, right? Mm-hmm. Enforce, enforce, you know, complex credentials. You know, these, these kind of duh things we think about in IT because they're easy to automate. Well, they're not necessarily easy to automate with XIoT. And to your point, Kelly, sometimes you can't. Sometimes the fix requires a, a desoldering iron and a wire cutter. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not that simple. But I, I do think you made an excellent point, which was visibility. Uh, a yeah. lot of this comes down to simply knowing what you've got. You know, when we talk about asset intelligence, we often think, well, laptops and applications and users, identities, uh, cloud, SaaS, things like that. But often what's overlooked is the XIoT stuff. And like we said before, there could be thousands or tens of thousands of IoT and OT devices in your environment, depending on your business vertical. So that's, and again, they're all little Linux servers running around probably with default passwords and uh, and 50, you know, you know, high level, level 10, nine, eight CVEs. So I, I guess with that, as we, we wrap up, because I, I think <laughs> we could probably keep this discussion going on for hours and hours. Uh, as you look into your crystal ball and and kind of take a look at, you know, maybe some of the things dark reading uh, will be covering over over the coming, you know, quarters. You know, you mentioned ransomware before, but are are there some other leading things that just seem to be hitting the hitting the wire just again and again that are going to be hot and things that uh, maybe some of our listeners should be paying attention to? I think, I mean, this is not a surprising theme. We all kind of know this, but what still is kind of interesting to me and just we see it every day is how easy it is now to be a cyber criminal. <laughs> you literally don't need to know anything mm. about malware, coding, nothing. You just have to have a, a foray into the dark web and sign up for a service or buy a credential and you can do something, right? So the mm-hmm. whole ransomware as a service thing is terrifying to me. And just the fact yeah. that it's not, it's just so simple to go that direction, right? And that just that's just mind-boggling to me. And that just that feels like this is just going to keep going on and on and on because you don't they don't have to spend a lot of money to be a cyber criminal. And you're not going to make the millions that a big gang would make, right? But you could actually make money that way. It's frightening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's always going to be something that we're going to be battling here. And as the technology gets stronger, both in like things like five G and you know quantum. And AI, we're good. those are things that are going to make it easier and more painful, right? So it's always kind of staying on top of the curve on, on the, the security side of things. But but what I always think about is we always come back to the same, every time we interview somebody in a security story or, or talk to someone, it always comes back to, if you do these things, <laughs> you can mitigate your risk, right? You know what those are, right? We can name yeah. them all. We know those simple things you can do, but not everybody's still mm-hmm. doing them, right? A lot of organizations still are, or because of what you're saying, they're not, they don't see those devices are out there. They don't know those devices are out there. They can't do it. I still think visibility is one of the main things that causes all the problems, but also just mm-hmm. being, you know, once you had the visibility, really getting solid, you know, strong, whatever your, I don't want to use the word zero trust too much, but that kind of thing. Like you've got the don't trust anything, verify everything approach to something getting on your network, you know, and doubling down a multi-factor, you know, all those things, you know, patching, yes, when you can, but as we know, you can't always patch. And that's true. A lot of even just IT organizations, you can't just put the patch out that day. Um, you have to test some things. So um, I feel like it's just, there's always going to be more of the same in some ways, but I also think the easier way out is what the cyber criminal is always going to do. So, you know, as mm-hmm. that's always going to be there, that's always been their jam, right? Is going for the easy way in. So that'll continue to be the case. But I feel like our industry's gotten more, and even the business world, have gotten more educated on cybersecurity. I mean, probably six years ago, if you told somebody we did for a living, they would be like, 
what is that exactly? Now you can talk about it. Like, oh, cyber, you know, <laughs> somebody knows what it is. So mm -hmm. even your family knows what you do now. Um, so I feel like there's more education. Um, and I guess I always come back to when my, if I was going to preach anything to the industry, I always say, I think it's important for users to kind of be part of the equation. Like, don't make them feel like they're the bad guy or the bad gal or person. They should feel mm -hmm. like they have a stake in this too. Like they're part of keeping the organization healthy, moving forward, just making like think of it as part of your job is to make sure that you secure all your stuff. You know, I don't know how you yep. Im embed that in a culture, but I think that's really important. There's a lot of approaches to that out there I know in the industry, but I still feel like if people really understand that as a user, then they'll be on board to kind of be vigilant and, you know, do the right thing. Yeah. And, and, and it's, that's a great summary. And you think all of the things you just said are hard enough on kind of traditional IT and you think, what about doing all of that on XIoT? It's even harder. That's a wonderful way to kind of summarize it. And wow, well, uh, it was just fantastic discussion, Kelly. It's wonderful having you on. And, and uh, thank you again so much for joining us today. And and again, Kelly, can, can our listeners find you somewhere on social or anywhere that you want to tell them they can find you in case they want to go? Yeah, I've not been kicked off Twitter yet, so <laughs> I'm still, <laughs> I haven't said anything to kick me off. I'm at KJ Higgins, uh, also on LinkedIn under Kelly Jackson Higgins. And yeah, I'm pretty active on both those social platforms. So you can find me there and also darkreading.com. I don't get to write as much, but I live in that site. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's wonderful having you and thank you so much again for joining us, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to both of you. Awesome. And remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive full-scope security for the extended Internet of Things. And until we meet again, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contes. And we'll see you next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast.